Recovery Elevator, episode 47. I don't want to test it. I mean, people say, well, if you don't think you're an alcoholic, go ahead and have a few drinks. I don't want to test it. I just don't. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker, I have been sober for 15 months and two weeks at this point. On today's podcast, I've got Bill. He's 58 years old. He's been sober for 17 months, and he's got three lovely daughters. Now, let me stop you right now. Yes, you, the one who just heard that I'm interviewing a guy who's 58 years old. He's a father. He's got three lovely daughters. I'm stopping you right now, the person that was like, nope, that's not me. I got nothing to do with this guy. I'm probably not an alcoholic anyways. This podcast sucks. Peace out and stop. I'm telling you right now, listen to the similarities and not the differences. That is a core skill. I say skill because I've had to work on it, but it's a core foundation that I have brought into this podcast is after interviewing 47 alcoholics, I can now focus on the similarities and completely forget about the differences. And what I have realized is that all these stories are remarkably similar if you really listen switch out a couple details, they're basically the same. So you, who is trying to find a reason to just not listen to this podcast, listen to the similarities and not the differences. You're not going to be doing me a favor. You're going to be doing yourself a favor. We've got some really cool things going on with the Recovery Elevator community. We've got two meetups planned. The very first one is in my hometown, Bozeman, Montana, on January 23rd, starting at 6 p.m. The next one is on February 27th. That's a Saturday in Seattle, Washington. I don't know the exact address right now, but the location is booked. It's in a high-rise downtown Seattle overlooking the sound. So if you are in the Northwest, if you live in the state of Montana, hell, if you've got some frequent flyer miles, come on out. I'd love to put a face to some names and expand my recovery network, my recovery portfolio. So if you do plan on coming to either one of these two, go to recoveryelevator.com, find the tab meetups and RSVP. Really, anybody can go. You just want to know who's coming so we can plan accordingly. The topic for today's podcast is alcohol is killing Americans at a rate not seen in the last 35 years, according to new federal data. I saw this article posted in the Recovery Elevator Private Accountability Group, read it, and was like, hmm, interesting. Last year, more than 30,700 Americans died from alcohol-induced causes, including alcohol poisoning and cirrhosis, which is primarily caused by alcohol use. Not in this article, but I've heard elsewhere, is that there are over 3 million deaths worldwide due to alcohol abuse. Back to the article. In 2014, there were 9.6 deaths from these alcohol-induced causes per 100,000 people, an increase of 37%. This tally of alcohol-induced fatalities excludes deaths from drunk driving, other accidents, and homicides committed under the influence of alcohol. If these numbers were included in the annual toll of deaths directly or indirectly caused by alcohol, this figure could hover near 90,000 people, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Wow, that sounds like a pretty official agency. However, in recent years, public health experts have focused extensively on overdose deaths from heroin and prescription painkillers, which have risen rapidly since the early 2000s. But in 2014, more people died from alcohol-induced causes, 30,722, than from overdoses of prescription painkillers and heroin combined, that's 28,647, according to the CDC, guessing that's Center for Disease Control and Prevention. 
Wow, they even have an acronym. Very official agency. Mr. Philip J. Cook, a Duke University professor who studies alcohol consumption patterns and their effects, notes that the per capita alcohol consumption has been increasing since the late 90s. And this is what Philip Cook says. Since the prevalence of heavy drinking tends to follow closely with the per capita consumption, it is likely that one explanation for the growth in alcohol-related deaths is that more people are drinking more. Wait a second, that line somewhat contradicts the urgency or the spinning newspaper and bam, this just in hot off the press thought of this article. I think he's just saying there's more people in the world and we're going to have more deaths. Kind of like if there are more deer in the state of Montana, more cars are going to hit deer. I hit one this summer. No good. Okay, back to the article. The number of American adults who drink at least monthly rose by a small but significant amount between 2002 and 2014, from 54.9%, call it 55, to 56.9%, according to the data from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Also sounds official. The change has been especially pronounced among women. The percentage of women drinking monthly or more rose from 47.9% in 2002 to 51.9% in 2014. And the percentage of women who reported to binge drink, defined as five or more drinks on at least one occasion, rose from 15.7% to 17.4% over the same period of time. Statistics was not a strong suit of mine in college or really ever, but those don't seem like numbers to really start running for the hills for. 55%? to 57%, that's 2% with the men. The women pushing 3%. I don't know, the title of the article led me to believe those figures would be at least double digits. But let's read on. Cook notes that when you adjust the alcohol fatality rates for age, the increase narrows somewhat. That's because older Americans are more at risk for alcohol-induced diseases like cirrhosis, and the American population has gotten older over the past several decades. Wow, that's a newsflash right there. Once you adjust for age, the increase in alcohol deaths could plausibly be accounted for the growth in per capita consumption, Cook said. This could be speculation, and that's all it is. The publication out of Alaska came up for an idea for an article and said, wow, let's get in touch with Philip J. Cook, a Duke University professor who has been studying alcohol consumption since the 90s. And Philip J. Cook's response so far from what I can infer is, well, you know, you're going to get more people in general as a population rises. And yeah, that's why you're having more deaths. But really, people just still like their booze. But here is an interesting twist. The heaviest drinkers are at the greatest risk for alcohol-induced causes of mortality. And some drinkers consume plenty of alcohol indeed. Prior research by Cook indicates that the top 10% of American adults consume the lion's share of alcohol in this country, close to 74 drinks a week on average. When I read that, I was like, bullshit, no way could I ever, wait a second. There was that one Saturday in college when I had 37 beers. That was in the daytime before the night even happened. I'm well on halfway to my 74 drinks. And then there was 418 times after that where I had probably 20 drinks in one night. So that's 74 drinks a week on average, that's probably spot on. And that's coming from Philip J. Cook, a Duke University professor. Yeah, Duke, that was my safety school. I'm just kidding. And this is the takeaway from the 10% of people that drink 74 drinks a week on average. I think it's safe to say those people could fall into the alcoholic category. I myself would fall into that category. And about 90% of people, from what I have read, are normal drinkers. So the 10%, the 10%, the lion's share, are alcoholics. 74 drinks a week. 
I wonder who Budweiser, Miller Lite, Corona, or anybody out there who sells or makes alcohol makes their money off of. Is it the normal drinker or is it the alcoholic? Somewhat of a rhetorical question. Don't email me. I already know the answer to that. I have said it before in previous podcasts, and I'll say it again right now. This podcast has nothing against alcohol in general. If you are a normal drinker, congratulations. Drink one for me. Here's another discerning takeaway. But with alcohol, the line between moderate use and dangerous use can be a thin one. A recent study quantified the risk of death associated with the use of a variety of common recreational drugs. They found that at the level of individual use, alcohol was the deadliest substance, followed by, this is second and third place, heroin and cocaine. And here's the reason behind these agencies that have great acronyms. The ratio between a toxic dose and a typical dose is extremely narrow with alcohol. If you're happily buzzed at, say, three or four drinks, or for me, 12 rum and coke, six Coronas, and a shot of tequila, you might decide it's fine to have one or two more. Those one or two more can put you way over the edge and possibly lead to alcohol poisoning. For this reason, some researchers are starting to urge public health officials to focus more on the dangers posed by alcohol and less on the dangers of less toxic drugs like marijuana, LSD. One way to rein in problem drinking would be to simply raise federal alcohol taxes, which are currently at historically low levels. That is how the article concludes. I'm just real quick going to debunk that last line of the article. One way to rein in problem drinking would be to simply raise federal alcohol taxes, which are currently at historically low levels. That is a great way to rein in drinking for normal drinkers. You're talking about alcoholics who have been told if you get one more DUI, you're going to go to jail for a long time of felony. We at times are told if you take one more drink, your body will shut down. We know the consequences. Our families will leave us. Our houses will be repossessed, yet we still drink. I'm not a diplomat or a lawmaker in Washington, but simply raising a couple taxes in the checkout line, that's not really going to affect my drinking or not. But I do like what they said, that some researchers are starting to urge public health officials to focus more on the dangers posed by alcohol. That needs to start in schools, and that has been a mission of mine. In January, I'm talking to four different schools. It's something that I love to do. I remember we had plenty of speakers come to high school, talk about drugs or how to reach our wildest hopes and dreams and goals, which is great. I don't really remember talking about how alcohol is more deadly than heroin or cocaine. I just don't remember that. Maybe it was said, but I doubt it. Another point I want to touch up upon is the epidemic we've been hearing about heroin and prescription overdoses. Yes, that is extremely dangerous and potent and an issue that needs to be dealt with. However, which is more of an epidemic, according to the numbers by the CDC, great acronym, is alcohol, 30,700 people. I don't really recall that being an epidemic ever, even though it's more deaths each year than the other epidemic. That would be overdoses from heroin and prescription pain pills. So after reading this article, I think a better topic instead of alcohol is killing Americans at a rate not seen in the last 35 years, a better topic could possibly be alcohol continues to kill a fuckload of people ever since the day it was fucking invented. Another title could be we need to go back to the Jurassic era to find out why humans weren't killed by alcohol consumption during the Jurassic era when dinosaurs roamed. Oh wait, there were no humans at that point. Alcohol had not been invented yet. This shit's volatile and extremely fucking.
fucking dangerous for about 10% of the population. Sorry for the F-bombs. Occasionally, they just come out. Okay, Recovery Elevator, before we hear from Bill, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Bill, how are you? I'm doing well today, Paul. How are you? Fantastic, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right into this, Bill. How long have you been sober? Sober consistently for uh, 17 months now. 17 Um, months. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. I, I started thinking about getting sober by attending an AA meeting a little over three years ago. Actually, it was November 14th of 2012. And at that time, I in AA, they call it pink clouding. And I, I didn't drink for about seven months. I felt really good about life and good about things. And so good, I decided I could drink a little bit. And it was funny. I, you know, kind of felt things go sideways for the you know, from there for a while. and So hang on, you went to your first AA meeting in 2012, and you just went to one meeting, and you're like, okay, I got this, and you were sober for seven months. Did you go to any other meetings after that? or? Uh, no, I, I went to meetings maybe about two to three times a week, and I practiced my own form of what I thought were the 12 steps and did that very aggressively. And, and again, it was funny that, the thing that kept me really connected at that point was the, not so much what was going on in the meetings and not so much what I was necessarily learning from the 12 steps. It was just all of the, let's say, positive coincidences that began to happen in my life, you know, after I opened my mind to them and probably after I, uh, you know, took the static out of my life and the static was, you know, was the alcohol. Static. I love so, how you use the word static. That's great. Bill, real quick, let's jump back a little bit. I want to get some background sure. on you before we dive more into your story, which I can't wait to hear. So, Bill, give listeners a little background about yourself, perhaps maybe where you're from, what do you do for a living, sure. how old are you, are you married, and stuff like that. Sure, sure. I'm, let's see, I'm 58 years old. I was born on eastern Long Island. I grew up pretty much either playing a sport or at the beach. So I grew up a beach kid and played a lot of baseball, a lot of basketball, and a lot of football. I actually played both uh, baseball for a little while and then football in college. Pretty much spent most of my uh, first 20 years or so on the East Coast. What do you like very, to do for very, fun now? Uh, I ski and I surf still. But uh, the interesting part about it is, you know, I grew up in a lower middle class family and everything was about, you know, being successful and all the things you had to do to be successful. So I was very driven that way. And to tell you the truth, early in my life, I wasn't really much of a drinker. Drinking didn't really come into my life all that, you know, heavily or at least seriously until I started working on Wall Street in New York City. And then it was really a prop. Hmm. Uh, um, you know, it was sort of still it was the early 80s. Uh, late 70s, early 80s, it was when, uh, you know, people were still drinking some martinis and wine at lunch and, you know, going to the, you know, the right club after work and being seen, you know, having a cocktail was, uh, 
you know, it was just part of the image and the image that, you know, frankly, I wanted to project and I thought I needed to project to be successful. So you were working on Wall Street while drinking. You mentioned the word static. When I see a graph of a stock that looks like pure static, that static mixed with alcohol sounds like a lot of static, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it probably does. You know, and when I, when I say static, it really means, to me anyway, blocking, let's say, the, the ability to appreciate and be grateful for the things that present themselves in, in, in life. In the moment. Yeah, absolutely. In the moment. You're when when I'm drinking, I'm never in the moment. Never. I'm either I'm either worried about what, you know, happened yesterday or what I did or what I didn't do or you know, what I have to do next week to, you know, get what I want. And not drinking just kinda slowly takes that away. And and it really wasn't that slow. I mean you know, the first kind of week that I didn't drink, uh, you know, all sorts of things happened to me that, that let me know that, you know, hey, there's something to the whole well, for me, the spirituality that I find in AA, you know, as well as not drinking and, 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 what it, and how it affects me. Yeah, let's, let's back it up to November 2012. Talk to me about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. When did your elevator get to the bottom, shall we say, and, and made you decide to go to your first meeting? Or was there another bottom 17 months ago? No, I think my, my worst bottom was back in probably October of 2012. And it was at a time where, you know, I had been separated for two and a half years from my wife. And that wasn't even as a result of drinking per se. It was more of a result of a marriage of convenience and a marriage of just working at being really, really good parents and, and not really paying enough attention to each other. So I couldn't blame that on alcohol. And to this day, my ex and I are very good friends, and you know she doesn't blame it on alcohol either. Mm. So it wasn't that sort of a situation. What it was is that we had been apart. There had been a lot going on with me as far as uh, you know work had been concerned because I had I really didn't have a lot of consistent work. Let's say subsequent to the uh, mortgage crisis in 2009. So money was creating a lot of pressure on me. And then I have three absolutely lovely daughters that I love more than anything in the whole world. And I wasn't consistently seeing them because they were on the uh, West Coast. I was splitting my time between the West Coast, New York, and, and uh, North Carolina, where I was doing a consulting job. And I wasn't drinking that heavily, but I had gotten to the point where I had to really get my own place. I was staying a lot in hotels. I was staying, you know, a lot at friends' places, both in North Carolina and in Princeton, New Jersey. And I finally got an apartment down in North Carolina. I got all my stuff moved in. And one afternoon, I was, I was literally just, you know, coming to the realization, you know, because, you know, most of us don't like to deal with reality. <laughs> no, no. Especially, especially when you especially when you're drinking a bit. Yeah, I'm included and, in that. Uh, yeah, and the reality was that you know, I had finally had my own place and 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 this whole thing about being away from my girls and 3000 miles away from my girls was was real. And I think honestly I had a nervous breakdown because the anxiety and the pain in my heart was so bad it literally brought me to my knees. And I got a little bit worried about that, 
and I went to, I, the next week I was back on the West Coast and I went to my doctor and I talked to him a little bit about that. And he put me on Xanax, which let me tell you, probably isn't a good idea for people who, even if you have a few glasses of wine a day, which is kind of where I was at. I, at that point, I was at about a bottle of wine a day. This is the way I drank. I, I was a number. You, you know, I just get enough to, you know, be buzzed and I'd be pretty happy. It doesn't mean I wouldn't drink more at times, but that was kind of like my average. But the Xanax literally put me into a state of depression to the point where I didn't see any way out of any of my difficulties. And I, I literally had contemplated death and, and, uh, and killing myself very specifically in a very specific plan to do it. And, you know, that's the only thing I can attribute that to is the, is the combination of, uh, alcohol and Xanax, to be honest. So, Bill, I, I think there's a value bomb. I don't think I've ever been there before. Yeah, you know? and I want to comment on the Xanax thing. I think there's a value bomb that you just dropped right there, Bill, is I had a suicide attempt in 2014, and it wasn't due to the booze. It was due to the, to the benzodiazepines, which Xanax is part of that category, right? I was also taking Xanax because, hell, alcoholism, that definitely wasn't the problem. It was my anxiety right? Seeking a pill cure. And then while I was on the Xanax, I just didn't see a way out, just like you said. So listeners, if you take one value bomb from this interview, tread very lightly if your medical provider recommends Xanax or any of these other benzos. Okay, Bill, keep going. Yeah, no, and and that's true because, you know, I was literally getting ready to go on a business trip when I, you know, on the business trip, you know, I wasn't really planning on coming back from and I guess I was acting a little bit funny on my, my ex because uh, I was staying with, uh, with them because uh, I was on the West Coast. You know, just kind of looked at me, and we never talked. <laughs> we really didn't. She has some, uh, some of her own medical issues and, and some of her own uh, things, and she's, she's also a narcoleptic, so she would spend a lot of time in bed. And, and this is normally a time we would never even be talking. It was, uh, I don't know, it was eight o'clock in the morning, I was having coffee, looking in the backyard, contemplating all this horrible stuff. And she comes in and, you know, again, she, normally we didn't say a whole hell of a lot. You know, she just looked at me and she, she gave me a funny look and she said, you're not going to kill yourself, are you? Oh, wow. And it was so bizarre. And, and I just couldn't take it. I just kind of broke down. And, and we wound up at least for half an hour having probably the best chat you know, about all the reasons why it was ridiculous to even think that, you know, for about a half an hour, maybe 40 minutes, it was probably the best chat we'd had in, um, you know, 15, 16 years. And this is in October um, of 2012 when you're in North Carolina? This is actually, yeah, this is actually in November and I'm, and I'm on the West Coast. Okay. Um, it, it was after I'd come back and started taking, you know, the Xanax. And it was, it was pretty amazing to me. And, and, uh, it was funny. And she was, well, you know, because she's the only person in my life that ever said to me, you know, you, you have a problem with drinking. I was such a control freak about everything in my life. I even controlled my drinking. My business partners didn't know I drank a lot. I mean, I, I, I drink when they drank, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a lot of people in business are, you know, moderate to heavy drinkers. And it wasn't even how much I drank. It's just what happened to me when I drank. The things I thought about and the way I isolated and the way I didn't 
you know, share my problems. You know how they say a, a problem shared is a problem halved? You know, I didn't have that mentality. My mentality was that, shit, I have to be able to control all this stuff. And I have to be able to fix it. And I have to be able to make it work. And I have to be able to provide. Bill, you know, if, let me get in here real quick. Done. If we were to use the conventional scholastic grading system, what grade would you give yourself from maybe, I don't know, an F to an A on how good you were at controlling your booze? Oh, I got an A. Even today, if I, you know, I'll go out on business and so on and so forth, you know, people would have never suspected that I had any problem with alcohol whatsoever. Okay. These are your business associates or outside looking in, you got an A. And I can side with you there. I personally got an A with controlling it, or I'm just going to say hiding it. But what? Yeah, and and, and a lot of it was hiding it. Yeah, yeah, but then I would give myself a straight up capital F for being able to control the intake. Example is like, oh, I'm only going to have one tonight. I'm only drinking after five. Did you ever try to do any systems or plans like that? Funny enough, I could could do that pretty well. I, I didn't all that much. But I could, um, you know, I, I could have a drink or two and, you know, kind of leave it at that. But I would drink the next day. Let's put it this way. I had no desire whatsoever to stop drinking at any time that I ever came into, you know, any sort of recovery program, which, you know, a lot of people don't have that experience. And a lot of people don't get to recovery, you know, before they have that desire to stop drinking. Sure. And, and this is another thing, I, I, you know, where... You know, maybe I'm a little bit different, but I don't think so. You know, people in AA who are real strict about it, and what I what I mean by strict is not being strict in the sense of following the 12 steps, because I think you need to be strict about those things, but strict about it, some of the things that they say about, you know, you have to, you know, hit your bottom or you have to want to stop drinking or you have to whatever for it to work. That wasn't the case with me. I found something in AA and in the people in AA that kept me interested, that made me know that there was something really good. A lot of what the 12 steps did for me was sort of clarify how I felt about a lot of the seeking of a higher power and or God or whatever you want to call it, you know, over the years, study of different religions, study of different, you know, meditations you know, various people that I've read. Um, it's very, very consistent, but it but it connects the dots in a way that you can understand. And that kept me interested. It kept me attracted. And then all of a sudden, and it wasn't all of a sudden, I guess it was kind of gradual, you know, I didn't want to drink anymore. You know, it, it wasn't like, you know, I came in saying, oh, God, I have to stop drinking or my world's going to end. You know, I went, I went to stop drinking because... You know, I I was encouraged by my ex, you know, to make sure I never destroyed the relationship with my children. Sure. And that had a big impact on me. And, and, you know, that combined with the fact that, you know, I really was feeling like I wanted to kill myself at that time, you know, kind of convinced me, okay, I'll go and I'll sit and listen, you know. And, And it was funny. It wasn't even what happened in that meeting. It was what happened to me after that meeting. That made me say, holy smokes, there's something going on here, and made me come back. Bill, I think half the battle is when that person says, ah, fine, I'll go. That is half the battle. And then I got two questions for you. Number one, are you an alcoholic? Would you say you're an alcoholic? And number two, would you consider yourself maybe a high-bottom drunk? I would say that I'm I'm, I'm a high-bottom drunk because when I finally started to address some of the problems that I had, 
they weren't nearly as horrible as, as I was making them out to be in my mind. And I'm not talking about insignificant problems. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, IRS taxes that I owed, you know, bills that I couldn't pay, you know, stuff that, that really upsets everybody, not just sure. alcoholics. But if you take them on, you know, if you face those things, it's funny how your higher power kicks in the gear and, and, and helps you out. And, and it's not always the solution you think it's going to be, but, but solutions do come. You know, they really do. And and I have faith that that happens now where, you know, a lot of times I was scared into, you know, just inaction. And that's the worst thing anybody can do is not take an action. Totally agree on the action part. But do you classify yourself as an alcoholic? I do. I, I, I still say I think sometimes. But the thing is, I don't really want to know right now. I don't want to test it. I mean, people say, well, if you don't think you're an alcoholic, go ahead and have a few drinks. I don't want to test it. I just don't. I got a uh, tremendous so, amount of respect for what you just said there. You're right. It's, you might, do you really need to know 100% if you know your life is better without it? You've got 17 months, and it sounds like things are headed in the right direction. Why even put your toe in that water? That's exactly the way I feel about it. It's, I know my life is better. There's nothing that happens to me on a daily basis that says, you know, alcohol is going to make this any better. Tell you me know? about and the relationships with your daughters. Has that improved? They were always great, but they're even better now. They really are. The girls, I hit it extremely well from the girls. And literally the only time they knew about it is if, you know, my ex would say, you know, oh, you've been drinking. And and the, and the thing that always used to tick me off and really get my resentments going, you know, back when it was something I felt like I needed to hide. And, and that's another thing. When you feel like you need to hide alcohol, you know, and I justified it, you know, in, in, in my situation because, you know, my, my ex was the type that she didn't drink at all. And if you drank, she just thought there was something wrong with it. Uh, you know, a little bit right of the wall on drinking, period, she was. Uh, but the thing that really used to get under my skin, and this is kind of funny, Paul, is that, you know, I'd have five or six glasses of wine and have conversations with her. And if she didn't smell it, she didn't know. Hmm. And I'd have one glass of wine, you know, which wasn't that common. But remember you said, you know, were you, are you the type that could have a glass of wine? Yeah, I could have a glass of wine. And I'd be talking to her and she'd smell it. And she'd go, Billy, you know, you just have to do something about your drinking. And the thing that pissed me off is that she was right, but for the wrong reason. You know, and it'd be like, God, oh, that irks the crap out of me. You're like, I, um, I just saw the movie Sideways, and that. this is a 94 Pinot Noir. It's one glass. Just stop it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and I just didn't like those conversations. They made me uncomfortable, and it got to the point where my girls were old enough, you know, that they would hear it. And it would be, and it would be like, I can't say anything. I have no, I have no basis to, you know, justify what I, what or how I was doing things. And, and that made me uncomfortable, and I worried about that. So, and these days, I don't worry about that at all. I never have to worry about it. Yeah, because um, I think life I, in general gives us enough to worry about. Am I correct? Yeah. And the other thing, and, and this is kind of an observation situation, it's like, and this is the reason why I know I've been pushed to sobriety. And I really do. I feel like my higher power, I feel like life has pushed me towards sobriety. It's not that I, I mean, I could be around my children and not have anything to drink and blah, 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 blah. And I would go off and think I'm perfectly okay. I'd go back to my house 
you know, I'd have my, you know, TV on, my feet kicked up, my computer going, have three glasses of wine, and I would get a call. You know, you have to come and do something. And those are the situations where I think I'm perfectly safe. Now I have to go drive over to their house, be around them after having three or four drinks, Mm-hmm. and worry about whether or not somebody's going to notice that, you know, I've had a drink. And drove and, over there after a couple of drinks, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and all of which I've, uh, you know, have consistently done extremely well, and I'm not proud to say that, but, you know, I don't have any DUIs, and I didn't get in trouble that way. It would be these situations where, you know, again, I'm trying to control everything, right? I'm controlling the fact that, you know, I don't drink around my kids. I, you know, I, I, I make sure that I'm in a place where, you know, I can't get in any kind of legal trouble. Nobody's going to know. And guess what? Circumstances come flying at me that make me have to change that situation and be exposed to somebody, especially my ex, that I didn't want to be exposed to after I'd had two or three drinks. I just didn't want to because I knew there'd be some conversation that I didn't want to have to have. Yeah, you you keep mentioning the control factor. This is a side anecdote real quick. I was a normal drinker in high school and I was, but believe it or not, I was shit-faced during a class my senior year and I thought I had it under control. However, a fire alarm went off. Like I can't control that. And I'm walking down the stairs. I actually ended up tripped and like falling down a flight of stairs, right? You just can't control that stuff. And and that's kind of how the cover was blown. Let's put it that way. And Bill, tell me about your recovery portfolio and walk me through a day of your life of how you've made it to 17 months. I get up in the morning. I say the third step prayer. I say the Lord's prayer. I ask my higher power to you know, help me stay away from a drink. I go to a 7 a.m. AA meeting, which is a home group meeting that I go to, and it's a place I feel very comfortable, and I hear a lot of people talking about solutions, you know, to what they're up to. After that, I I pretty much do a little bit of work, check all my emails, make phone calls if I have to, and then I go to the gym and work out. And occasionally, I'll go to a meeting sometime later in the day. I also try to ski when I can here. At one point or another, I'll get back and I'll see my children, and then uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, you know, my evenings, it's just, it's like any normal person. I mean, sometimes get together with friends or go out, sometimes, you know, not. That's about it. And then on the weekends, I I try to hit an 8.30 meeting and then spend, again, if I'm here, I spend a lot of time with my family, and I'm lucky to be able to do that. You know, a lot of people who are, you know, either separated or divorced, don't have that luxury, but I feel incredibly fortunate that I do. Fantastic stuff. It sounds like you're hitting all the key points there. And we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? <laughs> as ready as I'll ever be. Paul. There we go. Here we go. And I mean, even if you said you weren't ready, I'd be like, okay, number one, what was your worst memory <laughs> from drinking? <laughs> Literally when my ex-wife at the time looked at me and said that you're not thinking about killing yourself, are you? And that was subsequent to a, you know, a horrible dream I was having. I think it was either a day or two before where, you know, I, I had this, again, this anxiety in my chest where I felt like it was a heart attack and, and, and literally didn't even want to call anybody or, 
or, or didn't, you know, do anything about it because if it was a heart attack, I, I would be dead and I wouldn't have to worry about this shit anymore. So uh, the, the, my bottom, that was definitely my bottom. That week was my bottom. That's my worst memory. Anxiety and me, we're not friends. Question two, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward, Bill? My plan is just to keep doing what I'm doing. I just take it one day at a time. You know, I know that's, uh, especially anybody who's familiar with recovery, that's an overused term, but there's very little difference between taking it one day at a time or living in the moment. I think if we can live in the moment, whether we're alcoholics or not, our lives are going to be better. I just look forward to hopefully having a lot more years of, of life in front of me and enjoying it sober. That's pretty much my plan at this point. And if it's got you 17 months, just keep on it. And I'm going to go more with a one day at a time. For me, that means just that, be in the moment. I posted a video last night on the Recovery Elevator Facebook page. Check it out. I, it was, I thought it was lame, but it got a great response. It's when I pick my dog up at doggy daycare. It turns any day. If it's a bad day, it turns into a great day. It was me. When I show up to that window, he just runs up to it, and it's being fully in the moment is what I can be these days in life, which I love. And next question, Bill, what is your favorite resource in recovery? Well, for me, it's my, you know, it's my 7 a.m. meeting on weekdays, it's prayer and meditation, and, and just some of the, you know, the other things that come into my life that are totally unexpected. So, but my, my real resource is that 7 a.m. meeting. You know, it, it gives me consistency, and I'm one of those people that, you know, I thrive on consistency. You know, once I start doing something on a consistent basis, I, I, I get a little thrown off. And since I haven't used up my full 60 seconds on this one, I just want uh, you were talking about doggy daycare. Uh, my girls have a Bernie's Mountain Dog that they can they can hardly control half the time because he's so darn big. <laughs> so I walk I, I walk him once a day up in the foothills of the Bridgers, and and that's a great time to meditate. And and I try to do that every day. Oh, love uh, it. I, I'm 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 with you on that one, Paul. Oh, that's great. And in regards to sobriety, Bill, what's the best advice you've ever received? You know, the best advice I've ever received is the fact that we are in the care of the higher power and that we don't need to know all the answers and we don't even need to acknowledge it. But there is the best advice was an explanation of, you know, good and bad and how things aren't necessarily necessarily uh, or shouldn't be perceived that way. Let's put it that way. I mean, I mean, obviously there's evil and obviously there's good, but on the other hand, it, you know, it's kind of like the guy who misses the airplane and then the plane crashes. I mean, it was horrible that he missed his flight and he was really upset about it, but was that a good event or a bad event for him? Life is just kind of that way. And just, you know, the fact that I'm only responsible, you know, for the next right action I am not responsible for outcomes, and if I can accept the fact that that's the case and that I can't control those outcomes, I get some peace and I get some serenity. That was great advice for me. So I don't know if that made sense, but I rambled back you know, down around a little bit. But you were at a minute general, four, Bill, great. under 60 seconds. I'm just kidding. You just said, <laughs> you. I, I was waiting for the word. I was waiting for the word, and you said it. If I can underline capital bold accept if i can accept these circumstances and be okay with it that was great advice i love it 
And last question, Bill, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about getting sober or are in early recovery? Seek other people out, ask for help, and never be embarrassed of your situation because quite honestly, you know, you get into an AA meeting or you get around people who are being honest and you realize how much you have in common and how much you're able to help each other. It really is a gift. So my best advice would be, you know, hey, even if you're on the fence as to whether or not you have a problem, you know, check some of these things out. Um, I think what you're doing, Paul, is fantastic. Sitting through a few AA meetings, that's just a couple hours of your time. I mean, you can decide pretty quickly, you know, if there's anything there for you. You know, there's, there's a bunch of stuff out there if you don't stick your head in the sand and, and, and just ignore your situation. And who knows, you may not be an alcoholic, but but, you know, you can still find something good. So uh, that would be my advice. Love it. And last, before we go, I'm going to need a personalized, you might be an alcoholic if, and I got one first before you go. This one is, you might be an alcoholic if your name is Bill. And I'm going to explain this to you. This is probably purely coincidental, but the first couple of AA meetings that I went to in 2011 or 12, I felt like everybody was named Bill, right? And we all know who founded this thing, this guy named Bill and his buddy Bob. Yeah. And tell me, that. so that was that's mine. Parents, if you have a, some advice to you parents out there, probably is just coincidental. Don't name your kid Bill or Bob. <laughs> And they'll be fine well, with the do, booze. If you do, if you do name, name him William, you know, call him William. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so let's hear yours. You might be an alcoholic if. If you feel like, you, and this isn't going to be a funny one, if you feel like you need to hide it from anybody at any time. Love it. And they don't and, have to and, be funny. And for, and, for, and for any reason, even if you think it's a good one. You might be an alcoholic if you feel like you have to hide it from anyone. I love it. And that's going to go in the show notes, uh, recoveryelevator.com, episode 47. Bill, got to say thank you so much for helping me stay sober and spreading your story and sharing your experience with the Recovery Elevator audience. Well, thanks, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity. You might be an alcoholic if. Send us your personalized you might be an alcoholic if to info at recoveryelevator.com. They can be funny. I'm a firm believer we need humor and comedy in sobriety, but at the same time, they can also be serious. And thank you again to Megan who compiles these on a weekly basis. Number one, this one's from Margaret. You might be an alcoholic if you swish mouthwash to freshen your breath and you notice you cannot taste or feel it. It's like swishing water. This next one is from James Pete. At 476 days sobriety, you are still finding empty beer cans in the garage, the workshop, musical equipment cases, etc. Because you were hiding so many empties, thinking that you were fooling everyone about how much you were actually drinking. This one's from Laricia. You might be an alcoholic if you carry the tiny wine bottles in your purse and one falls out when you go to pay for your mani-pedi at the nail salon. This next one is from Tyrell. You might be an alcoholic if you live in a really small tourist town with only three liquor stores within walking distance. And you go into the liquor store and buy your usual, and the clerk offers you the local's discount. Love that one, Ty. This next one's from Meg. You might be an alcoholic if you find a half-empty flask of flavored vodka that you hid under the sink months ago, and you actually contemplate drinking it, even though you just hit one week of sobriety. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I'm excited for the community, the recovery network that I have built. 
That's where these meetups are coming in. I've been in contact with a lot of you guys around the country, heck, around the world, and I'm excited to put some faces to some names. So get outside of your comfort zone. Come join us in Bozeman on January 23rd. Hell, it's remarkably beautiful up here. If you like to ski, we got Big Sky. We got Bridger Bull right around the corner. Then we got Seattle February 27th. That's a Saturday. Talk about get outside your comfort zone. Recovery Elevator, Confession 3921. I'm terrified of these meetups. I really am. I got an email from somebody asking for more specific details about where in Seattle it's going to be because they're looking into plane flights. Guys, I'm scared. Are people really going to fly all the way up to Seattle to hang out with me? Well, it's not really about me. And that's what I got to keep telling myself. It's about expanding your recovery network, about meeting other alcoholics. This thing is communal. I can guarantee it. Within 15 minutes of being there, you are going to establish relationships that probably will last a lifetime as long as you stay plugged in and sober. The recovery elevator. You took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this. Thank you.